Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by our technical support chemist, Ashley Jones, one of our QC technicians, Lee Hawthorne, and one of our production managers, Joseph Burns. Uh, We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP operations guide written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing chapter 13 on common problems with silver, arsenic, sulfur, barium, lead, and chromium. If you would like to follow along with us, you can view the ICP operations guide on our website at www.inorganicventures.com. So let's go ahead and start off with silver. Ashley, I'm going to throw it over to you. What are your thoughts on silver? I have a lot of them. I think we've talked about silver in previous episodes, and it, it comes up a lot. We talk about it a lot when we have conferences and webinars and stuff, because it's it's just a problematic element with most of our samples. So the biggest issue is going to be precipitation and keeping that from happening and preventing you know, other sources of chloride contamination from being unexpected precipitation risks. So you, most people know that silver is chloride sensitive and therefore will form insoluble precipitates and fall out. I think a lot of people overlook the fact that it is light sensitive and it's one of those precipitation reactions that takes a minute sometimes. So if you have low level chloride, it's going to be more problematic because we need an excess of hydrochloric acid to keep it stable and in solution. But if you have low level chloride from contamination or if you're using, let's say you bought another stock standard that just happened to be made from a chloride starting material that you're unaware of, those low levels are really going to cause issues over time. You might not notice them. You might just start to see weird silver data. So it's definitely important, like we said before, to make sure you avoid chloride as much as possible or you go sort of whole hog. So I think Joey mentioned in one of our earlier episodes that there's a proportional ratio to the amount of silver and the amount of hydrochloric acid you need to keep it in solution. So let's say you have somewhere around 10 ppm silver in your solution, we're going to need 10%. If you go up to 50 ppm, we're probably going to need somewhere around 50% because you need that excess acid to keep it there. But even if we have the excess acid, we're keeping it in solution, it's still light sensitive. So I've seen a lot of people having issues with silver because they stored it in a cabinet and the cabinet's dark and that should be sufficient, but it's really not. We've also seen issues with, like if you're using a hood space that might have some chloride fume situation, that can also cause precipitation. So silver is just one of those. It's very finicky. You have to be really careful with it. And unfortunately, we've seen over and over that it's easy to have that low level chloride contamination from a myriad of sources. So if you're having issues with silver, that's one of the first places I'm going to look. It's really frustrating. It's really difficult to try to mitigate some of those like environmental contaminants. Silver is a silver does, and it does whatever it wants to. So. Awesome. Yeah, I know that environmental contamination, especially if you're working a lot with HCL, is a, is a big risk. I know, Lee, do you know, do we still have the beeswax in the lab? <laughs> if we if we do, it's hidden away from it. Where I can't see it. <laughs> I know we had done some testing years ago to see if we could seal the caps with of bottles with beeswax, prevent HCL contamination from the air. So I think those studies were 
not successful, but it was just an interesting of walking around the lab one day. I'm like, why is there a canister of beeswax hanging out here? <laughs> not going to lie. I was wondering why we had that. Yep. That is, that is why. <laughs> All right. Anyone else have anything else to say about silver? Well, so silver is one of its biggest tr trickiness things is also one of the things that makes it great because you can always use silver to determine if you have an unexpected chloride solution or uh, uh, impurity, where if you think you might have chloride, but you're not sure and you don't want to have to boot up your instrument, you can just add a couple of drops of silver solution, uh, shine a bright light on it. And the great thing about silver chloride, it is bright white. It will stick out. It'll stick out super easy to see. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot cheaper to do that than to <laughs> boot up an instrument. Definitely. All right. Well, let's talk about the next one. Um, arsenic is probably, after mercury, arsenic is probably the one we get the most questions about. So, Ashley, I want to throw this over to you from tech support side. What do you see as our most common arsenic questions that we get? From the tech support side, honestly, it's more so difficulty keeping solutions stable or seeing weird values and stuff. So, we unfortunately found out the hard way that we've got and issues with arsenic three versus arsenic five and we had some things converting that we weren't aware of and that started to throw off some of our customers results and that became its own very involved situation but arsenic is also a big precipitation risk that i've seen more and more with some of these other elements that we're talking about here barium lead bismuth arsenic together really don't like to play nicely and having them together can kind of require the counterintuitive solutions for things like barium because we'll talk about it in a little bit but barium is sensitive to certain levels of acid but if you have it with things like arsenic it's going to need more acid and that gets really confusing arsenic is also one of our hf thieves and i think that's something that a lot of people aren't aware of or they overlook quite a bit so if you have higher levels of analytes like arsenic in your solution you're going to need to fluorinate for that you're going to have to account for the fact that it's there because it's going to pull hf away from hf elements and destabilize and therefore cause them to precipitate so arsenic comes with some very weird very specific difficulties and that's one of those that it's hard to predict you can do everything right and it still might not want to play along with you yeah i think that's a good point about the whole arsenic plus three versus arsenic plus five we did find out that arsenic plus three is more sensitive. It's one of those rarities where oxidation state does matter. Um, so if you're having issues, you know, arsenic results that are not where you expect them to be in the realm of anywhere from like two to 5% off, you may want to look at arsenic oxidation state. It may be a concern, but we did find that. And there's more information on that phenomena in um, the arsenic sample preparation guide on the Inorganic Ventures website. So if you're more interested in that, definitely check that out as a resource. But arsenic, Lee, I'll, I'll throw this over to you. You have there's specific concerns about the mass spec with arsenic, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. I, I, again, our friend Chloride is making an appearance into this. And if you have uh, arsenic and chloride in a solution, and you're looking at that mass 75, then 35 chloride and 40 argon are going to land on that mass, and it's, they like to pile up and go through the detector together. They um, they're going to give you some false highs there. You really got to watch that. Definitely, and that's where you know like a collision cell or you know, helium or something like that would be beneficial to use, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to figure out a way to knock out that stuff. Perfect. 
All right. Well, let's start talking about sulfur next. So sulfur is kind of a weird one. It's relatively straightforward, but I know Lee and QC sulfur is not great because it's just not super intense, right? The, the intensities are fairly poor on sulfur. We often wind up having to prep it higher, you know, to do checks on that. 50 ppm seems like a good place where you get actually decent intensities. It, if you get too high, then it starts having different problems, but there's a sweet spot for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those that has, uh, you know, the ionization energy required is just, you know, really high compared to some of the others. So yeah, you just don't get that sensitivity that you normally would. So especially for a lot of our work with certification, we've got to have good intensities that are really repeatable. Yeah. Sulfur, I think, is also a pretty common contaminant as well. We usually find that in our trace metal impurity data a lot. Ashley, Joey, anything, any other sulfur thoughts you can think of? Yeah, sulfur, sort of like some of the other elements we've talked about, some of the frustrations with sulfur come with not sulfur itself, but the way that it interacts with other things that might be in your solution. So it's also an HF thief. It's going to take that fluoride away from the elements that need it, so we have to fluorinate for it if it's there. And then sulfates will form insoluble precipitates with other analytes like calcium and barium and lead. So you have to be really careful about what source we use for our sulfur and what else is in the solution when we need sulfur to be there. Yeah. And Joey, that's a good point about what source of sulfur. Joey, what do we use for most of our sulfur that goes into like custom element blends? So for 99% of our uh, custom blends, we'll use methane sulfonic acid. It has some similar uh, ma- mass ratio as sulfuric acid, but since it's not sulfate, uh, we don't have to worry about, as Ashley said, the calcium or barium sulfates that are insoluble. Perfect. All right. Well, let's talk about barium next. And Joey, I heard that you have some barium hate that you want to get out of your system. So much barium hate. <laughs> as we just said, barium will form uh, insoluble barium sulfate, as and as most group two elements do. There, it's not a huge fan of hydrofluoric acid. You'll get the insoluble uh, barium fluoride salts. The reason I personally have so much hate for barium is it is super sensitive with nitric acid, where nitric acid is the best acid to dissolve it in. But if it's too high of nitric acid, it'll form an insoluble barium nitrate, which Due to being hurt one too many times, if ever a precipitate forms while I'm making something with barium, first thing we're going to do is change order of addition so barium gets added as far away from the nitric acid as possible. That way we just don't hit a pocket of concentrated acid. But what's tricky though is the barium nitrate, super obvious when it forms. Barium sulfate, not quite so obvious and can go unnoticed. So you might have lower than expected results just because you didn't notice it fell out. Oh, and you know, as a lot of metals do, it's not super happy in basic pHs. So, yeah, that was a lot of what, you know, Paul had written about was just all the insolubles that form, especially when you get like neutral pH, losing it as like a carbonate or hydrogen phosphate, I thought was interesting because we typically don't see that because we don't use a lot of carbonate in our final products that we're using to mix together, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. Lee, I know you had mentioned we do gravimetric analysis on certain elements, and you had mentioned typically bariums presents a, a unique problem with that process, right? It, it, it forms a, a 
barium sulfate salt, which is what we're going for when we do those gravimetric assays. This is for, you know, certifications for our sort of mother concentrates. And it, it works so well that it can be difficult to clean the platinum crucibles. Sometimes we have wound up having to clean and refire these crucibles two or three times before we can get rid of all that barium sulfate. It's, you can't, like Joey said, you can't really see it, but you can tell because the weight's wrong. Like, why is that platinum crucible still heavier than it should be? It's a really, it's a tricky one, man. Yeah, that's something we don't see for like some of the other elements that we do that for, like potassium and sodium, right? You know, they, they come out like a charm. Yeah. The water gets it right out. Yeah. So yeah, this is interesting. A lot of a lot of strong opinions about barium. I don't <laughs> think that's, uh, you get four people in a room, they probably don't have as many feelings about barium <laughs> as we do. It just doesn't play well, man. We've had some solutions that precipitate and we know that it's most likely barium, like Joey said, but it, no matter what you do, it's barium just refuses to play along with us. And it's one of those where, like we said, if you've got a lot of acid, it's not going to be happy. But if you have it in solution with lead and bismuth and arsenic and um, other analytes like that, it's going to need more acid. So it's super hard to predict. And I honestly think that barium is just committed to making our lives well, difficult. The, the fact that we've talked about three elements three other elements so far and it doesn't play nice with two out of the three <laughs> I, I think that says something yeah. yeah all right let's continue on with lead so actually i'm going to throw this one over to you paul mentioned compatibility issues which is really your specialty so i'll let you talk about lead yeah so lead similarly there's a reason these are grouped together lead is going to have compatibility issues with sulfates and chromates we've always got to worry about precipitation one that I think we overlook quite a bit is that lead is also sensitive to hydrochloric acid. So we have, you know, pretty conservative quoting guidelines because we want our products to be as stable as possible for as long as possible. But one of those guidelines is that we have to be really careful about adding higher levels of lead to certain levels of hydrochloric acid. So I did some more digging into that because those guidelines, like I said, are super conservative. So I wanted to test that those guidelines were appropriate, and unfortunately, they are. So we've seen we could get about up to 800 ppm, which is relatively high, but about up to 800 ppm in 10% hydrochloric acid. Beyond that, or with less hydrochloric, you're definitely going to start to see more precipitation. Usually, if you have lower level lead in a hydrochloric environment and you see some precipitates, it will go back into solution with mixing, but there's no guarantee that it won't come back out. So similarly, again, to everything else on this list, it's also a common contaminant and you have to be careful with environmental contamination and consumable contamination. And, you know, lead is just, it's everywhere. We make a lot of stuff out of lead. So again, <laughs> we got barium. So if you've got lead and you're not aware that it's there, it might start to pull other things with it. But yeah, the, I think the hydrochloric sensitivity is, it's the biggest contender when we talk about lead's compatibility and solubility for that matter yeah i thought that was interesting um in this chapter that paul mentioned specifically you know like leaded fuels from back before those were banned and like that being a source of a lot of the environmental contamination that you may find around but lead is definitely a big contaminant i know we see it all the time in our trace metal impurities it's a big contaminant in um acids so if you're really trying to measure low-level lead, you'll probably want to get a higher-purity acid. Yeah, it just seems to be one of those. It's just about everywhere. All right. So let's finish up this group by talking about chromium. And, Joey, I'm going to throw this one over to you because Paul talked a lot about the sample prep. So 
Could you run us through how we do sample prep for chromium? Uh, sure. So we start with metallic chromium and it's a long process because we have to use hydrochloric acid as a catalyst to get the reaction going. Then we, you know, they're not throw an overabundance of nitric acid at it. And it, this is literally a months long process in order to cook off the hydrochloric acid. And it's just constantly going in the, in one of the, our fume hoods. But this is a perfect callback to what I said earlier about how in order to test for any residual chloride left in the solution, we'll take a small sample, we'll add a couple of drops of silver to it. And as I mentioned earlier, the bright whiteness of the silver chloride really pops. Our chromium is a chromium-4, which is a dark blue. So you have to be careful if you're looking for precipitate because it's so easy to miss it with how dark it is. But it's just a very long process. It's it's a very high acid percentage. We have tried other methods, but we have clean cleanliness issues. Like we can't really use a fusion. We can't use a fusion method because of the impurities left behind by the fusion. But if you're in, if your lab doesn't, you know, work with all uh, 70 some elements that we work with, you may not care about the, oh, there's some lithium in my chromium so I can use a lithium carbonate fusion flux to help with the reaction yeah chrome also wouldn't you know it has some enemies on our very common solutions so it's also one that is hf sensitive but not the same way that we have the group 2a's or the rare earths that are hf sensitive chrome is happy up to 500 ppm up to about one percent hf so it's a little bit more forgiving but we still have to be careful with it and we still have to be aware that it's there and I think a question that we get a lot about our chromium solutions here that when you order standard chromium, you don't give us any specifics. You're going to see chrome three on your documentation, on your bottle, on your quote. That's because we label chrome three and chrome six very clearly because a lot of labs will refuse hexavalent chromium altogether. Not even a question. Can't happen. So we do that for... Um, peace of mind, I think, a little bit so it's easier to see and know exactly what you're working with. And that just refers to the starting material that chromium comes from. But hexavalent chrome, if you can use it and need to use it, guess what? It's still not happy with barium and or lead. So you can have issues there falling out as insoluble chromates. Um, so, you know, barium and lead coming back to bite us again. But yeah, chrome can be a weird one. We get a lot of safety questions about that one for sure. And as Ashley said, we use chromium three, not four, like I said. <laughs> All right. Well, does anyone else have anything else they want to talk about about you know silver, arsenic, sulfur, barium, lead, or chromium? Avoid them if you can. <laughs> <laughs> Especially barium. Uh, th these are generally just very they're important for a lot of kinds of testing. Um, for arsenic, I just want to say, if you're making your own preps with arsenic, make sure you match the media. It really matters. Definitely, yeah. That's really good advice. Matrix matching is as best as you can is always going to give you the best results. And yeah, arsenic is hard enough as it is. I guess it's true for everything and just yeah, specifically arsenic. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we hope you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivyignite at inorganicventures.com. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 14 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss accuracy, precision, mean, and standard deviation. 
We'll hope you join us then and have a fantastic week. Thank you.